also detect there on this Trinity Sunday. That was another uh, Trinitarian formulation. Uh, it's, called, uh, it's called the Gloria Patra uh, in uh, Latin, but of course that just means glory be to the Father. But it notice it said glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, our triune God to be worshipped, praised, and adored. Um, and uh, it will be, as it was in the beginning, and now and ever shall be, world without end. There is no end of his kingdom. And that's a comforting thought to us today in the tribulation and difficult times we find ourselves in. Things are not what they seem, and we're going to see some of that uh, in, the, in our text today. Well, if you have been here with us for a while, uh, we're now in the, in the sixth week of a consecutive expository series that I've entitled Seeing Jesus Together in the Gospel of Luke. Seeing Jesus Together in the Gospel of Luke. And so far, we have come as far as seeing the parallel tracks with John the baptizer and the promised Messiah Jesus and now the time at last has come for Jesus to come into this world and we get a chance to have Christmas in June. Isn't that cool? Um, our, Chris, our text this morning is from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. A very familiar passage to many. Um, and the title today is the, the Nativity. The Nativity. Hear now the reading of God's holy word from Luke 2, 1 through 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds, out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, there was an angel with the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, 
Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand always. Let's ask God's blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, will you now once again honor your word by sending us the help of the Holy Spirit that we might receive your word and understand and comprehend its message. Lord, that still speaks to this day and will ever speak because our Savior's kingdom will have no end. And Father, but what, a, what an incredible beginning. In no way could it be understood except that it be revealed Lord, we pray that you might reveal our, uh, more and more of our understanding today. In this passage, which is so familiar, and yet still so much for us to learn and see. Grant us this, Father, for we pray in the name of the Son of David, our Savior, our Messiah, Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. In 1910, former President Theodore Roosevelt, he was the former president. Taft was the president at this time. But Roosevelt was sent to be the U.S. representative at the funeral of Edward VII, King of Great Britain. Well, T.R. didn't do things the way most people did. After the funeral was over, the German Kaiser told Roosevelt this. He said, Mr. Roosevelt, call upon me at 2 o'clock. But I have just 45 minutes to give you. To which T.R., Teddy Roosevelt, replied, I will be there at 2, Your Majesty. But unfortunately, I have but 20 minutes to give to you. 
don't you love it when arrogance gets put in its place? Don't you love it when something like that happens? You see, there is something satisfying about that. And that's essentially what Dr. Luke is doing right here in the second chapter of his gospel. He's putting things in their right order. He's putting arrogance in its place. You see, he's in essence saying to us and to anyone who reads his gospel, don't be too impressed by this guy, Augustus. Caesar Augustus. Keep your eye on this little place called Bethlehem. Keep your focus on the city of David and the house and family of David, for there you will find the future. Not where everyone believed at that time. The future was Rome and Caesar. Luke says, no. <laughs> Not going there. You need to focus here. Listen to me. Follow me today. And I will show you the real story of the King of Kings. By the way, who was this Caesar Augustus that Luke alludes to in the first verse of his of our passage today. This guy that we meet here, his name was actually Octavian. And as many of you perhaps know, he was the nephew of none other than Julius Caesar, who was slain on the Ides of March. But his nephew somehow crawled his way and fought and clawed his way into power and ultimately became the emperor of the Roman Empire. And he got a grip on things in Rome in such a degree that they, the Senate ultimately called him Augustus. Which means supreme leader. By the way, have you ever heard of somebody else that had that title? Supreme leader? Go back to your World War II history and you'll find that. I'll let you dig that out. But he was called supreme leader and he had been designated a God, a God, Caesar Augustus, the God Emperor, who would bring peace to the world, so it was proclaimed. But, as it is, God's generally get 
what gods want. And I'm using the little g. Gods like Caesar, like any other human being, pretending, deluding themselves to be gods, and yet they tend to get what they want. And in this case, Caesar wanted a census, a registry. Why? So he could collect more taxes. Why? So he could have more money. But there's something else going on, Luke is telling us. Behind the scene, he sets the stage of who we think is really in control. And yet there is this subversive underpinning, this movement, even right at this very moment, at the apex of the Roman Empire, the greatest empire at that time in the known world. But there was something subversive undermining going on here. Augustus is only, as it turns out in God's plan, just a background instrument to get God's purposes where he wants them. Luke essentially neutralizes him. Jesus never met him, and within three centuries, it was Jesus that ruled the Roman Empire. His people, Christians, Augustus Caesar was nowhere to be found. His reign was temporary. So today, let's look at this passage with this outline. The nativity goes like this. The journey, the delivery, the announcement, and the visit. There's going to be a journey taken. There's going to be a baby delivered. There's going to be an announcement made. And there's going to be a visit to the Holy Family by some unexpected shepherds. All right. First of all, the journey. That's basically in verses 1 through 5. Now think about this. Long, long ago, hundreds of years before, hundreds, God, through his prophet Micah, announced that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of his Messiah, the Christ in Greek is the word Messiah or anointed one. And it was foretold long, long ago that Bethlehem would be that place. But there was a problem. Mary didn't live in Bethlehem. She lived way, way, way up north, some 90 miles plus in the region of Galilee. 
So how in the world did God relocate Mary there at this point in time to be in Bethlehem for the birth of God's son, Jesus? Well, I'll tell you how. He used our friend Augustus. He used his census that he had to get money. That was his goal, to get more power. But God used him like a pawn on a chessboard. The greatest emperor in the world. And God just picked him up, put him over here, and put his son right where the prophet Micah said he would be. You see, emperors can make such fine servants, even if they're utterly clueless about what's going on. And you know that's true of kings and presidents and other August leaders. You see, God is the one controlling in his sovereign mercy and grace, bringing about his purposes. And Luke is telling us this is happening right here on this journey. Now, by the way, it's a long journey. I said 90-something miles. And I showed you a few weeks ago how they would have gone over and crossed the Jordan and would have come into up into the hill country. It literally, they would come up to the hill country of Judea and then down a little bit uh, south and east uh, to Bethlehem in order to be right where the prophet said that he would be born. What do you think the chances of that would be? That that could happen. Well, the point is, there is no chance. Luke is telling you, this is not a chance. This is exactly the plan and purpose of our holy God. Now, the delivery is in verses 6 and 7. Because of the influx of census registrants, there was no room for Mary and Joseph in the end. Maybe they thought they would get there and maybe they would find, uh, be able to uh, get in, connect with some relatives. We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us a lot of the details. He just says they got there. And unfortunately, everything was all booked up. And when Luke uses the word in verse 7, an in, <laughs> you need to put an asterisk beside that. An inn was not an ancient Motel 6. Typically, an inn was something more like a series of stalls where guests would build fire and cook food that they had brought with them. It wasn't a place in which you went in and got a five-star meal. You would stay in these little lean-to stalls And 
they could, people would be able, when they were in there, to look out toward a cave, perhaps, or a common area where animals were tethered. And it was more like a truck stop than it was a motel or an inn. Unfortunately, Mary and Joseph couldn't find one of those open stalls. They were all taken up. So now they got to go make a spot, find a place in the animal area. Could have been part of a a cave, could have been a first floor. We, We don't know for sure. Although there's some evidence that we do know pretty close right where where it is. Don't have time to go into that right now. But you see, Mary and Joseph, the time came for Mary to be delivered. But unfortunately, as I said, it was in less than desirable circumstances. Surrounded by animals. We don't know whether the animals were there at the time or whether they weren't. But you know what? They left their, uh, their marks all over the place. Um, when Jesus was born, he was placed, it says, in a manger. Now, let me tell you what that really is. By the way, it's not like, it's not what we put up here on uh, Christmas. We have a little manger, a little wooden manger. This would not have been a manger. First of all, a manger is a food trough, a feeding trough. But it's not made of wood. It wouldn't have been made of wood. It would have been stone. They're all over Palestine. Still to this day, you can find them. I've got pictures of them. A cold stone. feeding trough. Jesus' birth, brothers and sisters, was mixed with the stench of manure and pungent straw. It would have been a far, far sight and smell from what we see depicted on our Christmas cards and at pageant plays and at other reenactments it would have been a very very different sight nothing pastoral and sweet about it in Luke 7 Luke goes on to make this point that the one that is being born that night was Mary's son. Joseph had nothing to do with it. Oh, he was there with her. But he was not involved in who she was or who Jesus was. You see, when when. It says, this was her firstborn son. 
that also tells us the implication of that is she had many others. But those would have been by natural means. This was God supernaturally bringing his son into the earth and using Mary as that vessel. And Joseph had nothing to do with that. You see, Luke goes on telling the story without a lot of detail. Sometimes details are helpful. Most, a lot of times details distract. Luke does not spend a lot of time satisfying our curiosity about was there really a donkey that Mary was, he doesn't, what kind of, just doesn't seem to, he's keeping his focus where it should be. And we should keep ours too. Even though we, we love the scene and think of this at Christmas time and, and, and it makes, it, it seems to be such an idyllic situation in some ways. Yet remember the miracle was not Jesus' birth. It was his conception. The conception of Jesus is the miracle. The birth was like all other births that are successful. Now, the announcement is the third part, and that deals with verses 8 through 14 that we read. The announcement. Think about it. As poor as Joseph and Mary were, and their newborn seemed to be, there's another group that's more of an outcast than them. They're a poor family. They're in poor and difficult circumstances, but there's another group that's even further out there on the fringe. Those unclean shepherds. Why were they called? Why were they unclean? Because the priests had rabbis had told them they were unclean. They couldn't come to church to worship. Their understanding, their version of church, they couldn't come to work because they were ritually unclean. They couldn't, their testimony would not be acknowledged in a court of law. You'll hear about that later on at the end of Luke's gospel. Some other people that wouldn't be credited to be a credible witness. They are the first marginalized group we meet in the gospel of Luke, but guess what? They're not the last. Jesus, you're going to see him interfacing again with the down and the downcast. He's going to be lifting them up. We're going to see that over and over again in Luke's gospel. So the shepherds were doing what they were supposed to be doing, tending their sheep, and then, bam, out of nowhere, right on the same plane in their face, is this glowing angel that stood right in front of them. Now, to say they were shocked, <laughs> to say they were scared, as we say in the South, flat scared, that's an understatement. But the angel, like they seemingly we already have seen, they're quick to get out the words, hold on, hold on. Don't freak out. 
they told the shepherds. The angel told them, I have good news for you from God. But not just for you, you marginalized shepherds, people like you. But there's even others that are more vile in the eyes of the people around them. The dirty Gentiles. This news, this good news that God is bringing in his son is for even the worst, the most defiled of all. Because it is for all the people, Jew and Gentile. Now the angel told them that the baby born this day was Jesus, the son of David, the Savior and the long-promised Messiah. And that he was coming into this world to become one of us, to be God with us. Now, after this announcement, the whole host of angels appear in the sky. Not just one glowing angel telling them this news telling them about this event that will change all of world history forever. But now the whole skies are cloven with angelic beings, and they are singing. They are crying. We don't know if they were singing or if they were crying out, if they were hailing like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Was it that more of an We don't know. But man, they were making noise and it was reverberating throughout the plains of Bethlehem. Listen again to what was said. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, let's don't, don't run over that too quickly. That's a very, very important thing they are saying. Because Jesus has come, and because what Jesus will do when he is here on this earth, everything is going to be shaken. Everything is going to change. And so the angels, they get a glimpse of that. And therefore they say, give glory to God in the highest. But then they say there's something that God is going to do for us, for the people. But which ones? Notice again what it said. It said... Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That almost implies there might be some with which he is not pleased, right? And that's exactly true. That's exactly true. You see, the question is on whom then does his favor rest? 
There's, there's glory and good news for those on whom his favor rests. But who are they? Well, they are those with whom God is pleased. Okay, Joe, you're not helping us get, get anywhere. Okay? So, the ones here, the favor of God rests on those with whom God is pleased. And that then answers, asks the million dollar question. How can then someone please God? How can someone be saved, we would say today? How can someone be right with God? That's ultimately the question. And the answer is not what the world expects. The world in all its various ways will try to answer that. How can I please God? By doing this, offering that, making this happen, bringing this in about, giving this, changing this, fixing this. That's how the world resolves that question. Because it's clear not everyone is going to be pleasing to God. Who are the ones that are? answer is, the Bible's answer, is by believing in God's only Son, our Savior. Trusting that the Savior of the world will be believed on, trusted in. And when doing so, the Savior creates a transition, a turn, from which those were not in favor now find favor because of what Jesus did. Let me read to you how in his dialogue with Nicodemus, Jesus himself said this, Who is the one? That can please God, it's the one who has faith and trust in God's Son. This is how John records it. John 3, 14 through 18. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In other words, Jesus came to do something and he is going to have to die in order for us, for his people to find favor and to live. And Moses lifted up, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's an allusion to Jesus' death on the cross. That, here's the result, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So how do we become in favor with God? How do we have his favor? We believe and trust his son. Not ourselves, not others, only Jesus. And then that famous 
in verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. There's the answer to the question. But how can we please God if we believe on the Son and trust Him and we will not ever be condemned? But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. One way. Not two, not five, not ten, not hundreds. One way. Jesus and Jesus only. Finally, there's this last-minute visit of the shepherds to the circumstance, the area around the inn. Somehow, they found it. The visit, verses 15 through 20. You know, there's one thing we can know for sure. These shepherds were not sheepish. That one's grown worthy, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely grown worthy. These shepherds were not sheepish. The God of Israel had given them an announcement and they couldn't wait. I guarantee you they, they pro probably would have blown away Usain Bolt. Yeah. Getting, getting to where God had told them they could find his son. He gave them the announcement and they hurried off and they found the baby with Mary and Joseph. Just like the angel told them they would in a manger. I say, we tend to think of the manger, and we, we get all, all uh, in that cute, and we think of that. that. But you know what, that, what the manger just was? What it really was? Hey, guys, if you get lost, it's the one with the manger. Hey, and about, hey, listen to me. Did you hear what I said? It's the one with the manger. Yeah, with the, with the, with the baby, and it's that one. Three times. Luke is making sure they find what they're looking for. And almost immediately, once they get there, and once they tell what they have seen and they look upon the Christ child, in no time, they can't keep it. They are out and about Spreading the news. Almost immediately, they're sharing with everyone who would listen what the angel had said. And it says, Luke says, the townspeople, that it was spreading like wildfire. They were getting on it, in on it. And you know, here again is that, that, you remember I said that in some ways, uh, Michael Card calls his book, his co uh, commentary, The Gospel of Amazement. Here it is again, amazement. The people are amazed. The shepherds are amazed. Everywhere Jesus goes, people are going to be amazed at him. 
But Mary was amazed in a different way. If the shepherd's responsibility was primarily active, go scurrying about, running, telling through the hills and dales, Bethlehem, what the angels told them. But if the shepherd's response was primarily active, Mary's response was reflective. Listen again to verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. She treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. She's meditating. Mary is meditating. She's holding it in. Don't you know that, that so many, and this would be natural, if a mother knew that she had brought into the world the Son of God, wouldn't you think that Mary would be running through the streets of Bethlehem saying, I'm the mother of the Son of God, look at me. Because remember, she's already seen several angels. She's heard about things. And in one of those things, she was warned that this is not all going to be just perfectly smooth and wonderful and beautiful. Next time in this series, next week, we're going to actually see that she's going to be told about a sword that will pierce her heart. She already is getting the sense, I don't know how I fell into this story, how God put me here, but I, and I don't know where it's going. I know it's, I'm in the Lord's hands and I'm trusting him and I'm holding on. But she probably thought, what does this entail? What are the implications of this? How am I going to explain this? What if something way down the road and this thing does not go the way we hope and expect it to go? She was pondering and pondering. And you know what? I think she may have still been pondering long after Jesus had gone back to the Father. Maybe she had never told these details but somebody knew them my suggestion is she probably told them to Dr. Luke how else would we know these intimate details well there's much more to see stay tuned see you next week let's pray Father Lord what, a, what an amazing story and it's not all maybe what we think of it in the, in the best of light. But Father, it's true. It's with the words of truth. And it's how you brought your son into this world. The only one that could save us and cause us to have your favor resting upon us forever. Father, thank you. Lord, for your beloved, amazing son. 
and the gift that he is to all the world who will believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.